good afternoon and welcome to Deep in Scripture. This is uh, your host, Marcus Grodi, with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we're coming to you from the studios at the Coming Home Network International. We're working our way through Romans. And we're, today we'll look at Romans chapter 11, verses 1 through 12. And to a certain extent, it's hard to know when to stop in this long chapter. Because, again, this is a part of a long argument uh, that Paul is addressing the question. Uh, he's, he's speaking to Jewish and Gentile Christians who have raised the question, well, what about the rest of Israel who have not responded to the, Jesus Christ? Uh, what about the promises of God to Israel? Why have they not responded? What does this mean for Israel? What does this mean for salvation history? And all these are big questions that Paul is dealing with from verse chapter 9 all the way through chapter 11. But we'll look at verses 1 through 12 today. Um, in a moment, we'll, Ken, I'm going to, in a moment, ask you to kind of fill us in on how this fits into the bigger picture. But we try and, uh, to do as often as we can to address an email or some kind of question uh, apart from our study of Romans in this program. And this week, what I'd like to do is a little different. Uh, uh, on Facebook, there was a, uh, a dialogue uh, occurring over the weekend, last weekend. And um, I'm not going to mention any names, but um, a, a woman had posted on Facebook that she was fed up with the church and was going to quit going to church. She was saying that she wasn't losing her faith, but she, I guess, losing her faith in the church. And so there was were a lot of uh, other communi uh, people chiming in and responding to her plea, to her statements. And one particular person came on who was an ex-Catholic and made some statements about the early church, about the early church fathers, and about Scripture. And uh, another debater invited me into the debate. And uh, frankly, I don't usually jump in at all on those. Uh, but he posted something that I had written online about the early church fathers, and then he invited me in. And I've been putting this off, and I thought, well, you know, what I'd rather do is to invite Ken... Uh, who's our expert on the early church fathers and, and the languages to address this issue with me. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to post on Facebook that Ken and I are addressing this question on Deep in Scripture, and, uh, and hopefully the person online will hear that, and then, again, we can get into correspondence. So, Ken, what I'd like to do, there are three quotes from the Facebook dialogue that I'd like to read. And let's talk about. So again, the author is writing to someone who has decided to quit going to church. And so his first response is this. He says, the early Christians said that a church is apostolic only if it follows the teachings and practices of the apostles. If it departs as such, we have no choice but to seek fellowship elsewhere with those who do. Godspeed on your journey, he said. As always, I recommend the early church writings as an aid to your search. So, Ken, let's pause there and deal with his first question. Is he accurate in what he says about the uh, 
the early Christians following the practice of the apostles. And if a church doesn't, then we're free and ought to go seek elsewhere. Well, it's it's an excellent question, and of course, we we all feel the um, <clears throat> the pain, you might say, of of this woman who says that she's kind of lost faith in the church. She's quit going to church, um, and believe me, in my many years of dealing with fellow Christians, uh, I've discovered um, both within them and in myself discouragements with the church, and that was. No matter what church it was, I mean, I was discouraged with the Presbyterian Church at times, uh, certainly with other churches of people that I knew. Um, whenever there's scandal of any type of any kind of church, one definitely uh, feels that very, very much. Um, but then this man who's answering her um, is um, giving her a piece of advice, which um, certainly is not a quotation I know of no early church writing that says that a church is apostolic only if it follows the teaching and practices of the apostles. However, uh, one might infer that from certain things, for example, that Irenaeus says uh, later on. But um, I think what this man is saying is that if you have to attest every church that you go to and see if it's the same teachings and practices of the apostle. If you come to the conclusion that that church is not following the teaching of the apostles, then you have to go and seek another church. There's a couple of uh, erroneous assumptions in this. One of them is that we as individuals need to judge which church is following the teaching of the apostles. Well, now, that's going to be a tough task in the modern world because um, you've got the Baptist Church, who, you've got the Baptist Church, the Church of Christ, you've got the Pentecostal churches, uh, and you've got both the Unity Pentecostals and the Trinitarian Pentecostals. You've got the Presbyterians, the Methodists, the Anglicans. Uh, boy, you're going to have a quite a, a, a task. That, that sounds like a full-time job to me, uh, to figure out which church is following the teaching of the apostles. Um the um, Now, he's right in the sense that the church was always to be faithful to the teaching of the apostles. Um, that was That's what Irenaeus says. But part of the question is how you know that. And Irenaeus' answer to that, as well as I think the answer of other church fathers, is there's an, a line of apostolic succession of the leaders or bishops or pastors of those churches that's going back to the apostles. So it's not just a matter of their teachings and their practices, but it's a question of whether they have continuity with uh, the early church. The other um, false assumption that this man, I think, is making, which is understandable in the light of the conversation they're having, but it's assuming then that you've got all these different choice of churches that you can make. The early Christians didn't have many choices. <laughs> there was one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and then there were heretics that were going away from that. And that's what Irenaeus is dealing with in the late second century. But it's not just Irenaeus. We see it in Clement of Alexandria. We see it in Origen. We see it in Ignatius of um, early, early in Ignatius of Antioch. Um, and this is why, and he says, Ignatius of Antioch says very clearly um, that the churches that are apostolic are the ones that have the bishops that are in succession, as does Clement of Rome in, in his letter to the Corinthians, chapter 44. So um, 
he sort of, as so with so many things in Christian debates, he gets it sort of right, but then makes a wrong conclusion. I was thinking, it came to mind, you know, again, back in Galatians 1, where, you know, we have early in the church this idea of some other speakers or leaders in the church uh, departing from the apostolic faith and teaching a different gospel. And Paul says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As you said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. You know, can I, I think about back when I was a, a Presbyterian pastor, and of course most of my life I was uh, evangelical, um, we looked to Paul as a model for us in our preaching. We looked to Miles, Paul's conversion as a model of conversion, getting knocked off a horse. But sometimes, or, or we look at Jesus speaking in John 14, 15, 16, and talking about the Holy Spirit coming on his followers as a guarantee of truth. And we very quickly took those models and statements as normative of all Christians, as if every conversion should be kind of parallel to Paul's, or that the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised in John 14, 15, and 16 is, comes on in that way, guaranteeing every Christian of knowing what is true. Uh, almost like in First John, where John says, you've got the anointing, so you have no need for anybody to teach you, as if that's what it means. Or in Galatians 1, as if pastors could say, you're going off into a different gospel if you're not following what I taught you. And so you hold on to what I'm teaching you in, in a model of Paul. And the danger is that is we forget that Paul was a unique person. And Jesus speaking in John 14, 15, and 16 is not primarily speaking to all Christians in general. He's speaking to the apostles, that the Spirit will come on them, guaranteeing that they will remember what Jesus taught them and that they will be guided into truth. And the truth is that's at the core why we accept, and we'll get to this in a moment, the canon of Scripture, because we believe that those bishops that were gathered to finally determine the canon of Scripture had received this gift of the Holy Spirit and were a part of the apostolic tradition carrying on the apostolic deposit of faith. If we believe it in a normative, universal sense of every Christian, then we end up with this assumption that every individual can decide for themselves whether the gospel they believe is the apostolic gospel. And as a result, that's what we have today, Ken. We've got, as some have reported, thousands of, of Christian denominations, each one thinking that they are following apostolic truth, but yet all being contradictory from one to the next. Well, I think it's a very important point, and it's, it's interesting that— um, I did a little research uh, some years ago on um, the idea of a right of private interpretation. And, of course, I was 
encouraged to do this when I was younger because um well this is the way you do it right this is the this is the idea that you find out for yourself of course finding out for yourself is a perfectly good and valid idea but that doesn't mean that you are the one you are the, the final arbiter of truth, of truth. Yeah. exactly and uh, <clears throat> so i did a little research on this to find that i think <clears throat> that the most explicit um writer on this that I found was in a writing called De Doctrina. It's funny, it's called De Doctrina Christiana, like St. Augustine's, but it's written by John Locke. Now, Locke was a, um, he was um, a great uh, writer in the the 17th century, a philosopher, a thinker. But in this treatise, he says that God has given the right of private interpretation to every individual to decide for themselves, you know, what true Christianity uh, is. Um, Now, even though he, and if he was the first one ever to say it explicitly, the whole Reformation was sort of leading to that, if not built upon it. Now, what struck me in the light of that fact is that going back to Scripture, Right. Let's let's assume that Scripture alone is the authority. It turns out that Scripture denies the right of private interpretation. Uh, let me read First Second uh, Peter one twenty. He's he's talking about uh, the um, the the need to hold fast to the Word of God, to the truth of God, to the light that's shining in the darkness. And then he says in Second Peter one twenty. Knowing this, that every prophecy of Scripture does not admit of its own of, of one's own interpretation, of private interpretation, for prophecy was then um, sent uh, was carried along not by the will of man, but by the Holy Spirit that was speaking through the men uh, sent from God. This text can be translated several different ways, but. The key expression here that he uses is uh, "idios epiluseos u genetai" in Greek, and and it means every prophecy of Scripture does is not does not come with its own with you, you might say one's private interpretation. We have this a little bit as a reflection in English when we have the word idiot, because the Greek word that means all by myself, all my own, nobody else's, is the word idios or idios. <laughs> and we have it in the word idiot. That means a person is just completely turned in on themselves. That's what he's saying, that the scripture is not subject to this private interpretation. In other words, it, it not scripture doesn't come with just scripture. It comes with a meaning as well. And that is, is that text that we should we should look at. I think... And this, this was shocking to me personally, and I hope it's shocking to others, that God never gave any one of us an individual right to interpret the Bible the way that we want to interpret it. What he gave us was the Bible to be read, to be meditated upon, to be uh, imbibed, as it were, mentally and, and in our hearts, to grow in truth. But that truth doesn't depend upon our judgment. And the uh, the writer on Facebook again, you know, I apologize. We're not here to to attack him. That's not our point here. But just address some of the statements that he made. 
um, and the questions that were that arose in in his conversation and um, later as others had responded to him um, and challenged him he he makes this comment he says John you you know not of what you speak all of the New Testament letters were written before 100 AD and in circulation early there are several early canon lists that are nearly identical to ours in the late second and early third centuries and the first complete one identical to ours is Athanasius in 367 AD, all long before the fifth century date you give. So again, the person he's responding to was probably referring to the, I'm guessing, the uh, the end of the fourth century at the Council of Carthage and the Council of Rome in about 390s when the, the, mm-hmm. the bishops gathered in council uh, affirmed the, the canon that's now in the Catholic and Orthodox Bibles. He goes on, the church thrived during the first century without the New Testament. Paul admonishes us to hold the traditions as passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. He's quoting 2 Thessalonians 2.15. While it is true that we rely on these early Christians and their testimony about the writings, as we should on many other topics as well, to claim that any particular church has authority over the Bible is wrong, especially one that departs from it and what the early Christians taught in so many areas, icons, images, war, the millennial, etc. The early Christians were not Roman Catholics, which, by the way, I used to be a devout one, he writes. They taught against many things the Roman Catholic Church believes and practices today. They uphold apostolic tradition against heresy, but later church tradition that ceased to be apostolic, which incorporate a lot of pagan practices and ideas, they certainly do not endorse. And then he concludes, I encourage you to read the early church writings for yourself. It was life-changing. I assure you, though, if you do so, you will no longer be part of the Roman Catholic Church. Not a chance. God bless. Now, Ken, there's a lot in that to address. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not sure which uh, early church fathers he's reading. Uh, He must be living in a parallel universe uh, (laughs) because the early church fathers, the early church for Christians that I've read, uh, do not uh, do not uh, speak against icons or images. Um, Of course, what they do, I mean, in the millennium and so forth. these things are, it sounds like he might be a dispensationalist to me now. Um, hard to say exactly, but <clears throat> to say that they taught against many of the things that the Roman Catholic Church believes, I wonder if he's thinking of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who says in his letter to the Smyrnans around 108 A.D., within 20 years of the death of the Apostle John, uh, that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. Um, I wonder if he's. Sp- I wonder if he's speaking about um, Ignatius that talks about the church that is preeminent in Rome um, when he's talking about the. Uh, maybe he's talking about Irenaeus in the second century, who says that the church that has primary authority over all the other churches is the Church of Rome. So is he speaking against the Catholic Church? I, I don't, I'm not sure what where he gets these things from. Now, one thing we, we can say without a doubt, and, and you and I know this, Marcus, because we once believed that the early church taught against the Catholic Church. Um, you can take quotations out of context yep. um, from various church writers uh, in the early church, and you can place them in a, in a foreign context and make it sound as if it supports 
the anti-Catholic or Protestant ideas. Um, but that's not a fair way to deal with it. Just as we could take statements out of the Bible and make them say things that the Bible isn't teaching, right? You can do this with almost any language or literature. Um, so I'm a little puzzled by uh, why, how in the world this man would get to the, how he could get to this conclusion. One thing is for sure, the the faith or the uh, the list of the churches. He's talking about the canon, you know, mm-hmm. of Scripture. He talks about Athanasius. Uh, the list that Athanasius gives us in the fourth century is not the list of the Protestant Bible. It includes the so-called Deuterocanonicals, or what they would call the Apocrypha. So um, I'm not sure why he would encourage people to read the early church fathers. It would lead them to the Catholic Church, not away from it. And if you you read the history of the early church uh, with an open mind, there's no way you can deny the fact that there was a hierarchy uh, it was under siege because of the persecutions in the second and third centuries in, into the into the fourth. Um, so it wasn't until the about the middle of the fourth century that the church can freely come out in the open and and the full um, structure of the hierarchy is able to be witnessed publicly. But there's plenty of reference in all the second and third century writings of Mm. bishops and deacons and priests and the authority of those. And uh, and so the idea that some random group of of Christian believers could have somehow decided the canon of Scripture apart from the hierarchy is really absurd. Uh, I mean, the, one might say, yes, the Catholic bishops gathered and but guided by the Spirit gave us the canon and then went off and left field and abandoned everything else. That's what many believe. You, you can't go back in the canon of Scripture without connecting it to the authority of the bishops. And the reason we believe it's inspired is because we believe that those bishops were guided by the Holy Spirit to determine which books were in the canon and which ones weren't. Uh, If you jettison the church, in all honesty, you have to jettison Scripture because they are interwoven. You can't have one without the other. Now, our brothers and sisters that don't accept the church but believe in the infallibility of Scripture and base, base their faith on it are indeed basing their faith on an inspired book. They just don't affirm where it came from. But still, it is inspired and able to guide us, as Paul says in Second Timothy, into all truth so that we can know how to walk as a, a man of God ought to walk. Mm, yeah, the... Uh... You know, the more deeply that I've been um, delving into the pre-Constantine church, the church of the second and third centuries, um, the more deeply I'm impressed with the fact that the church was a formidable force in the Roman Empire, even though it wasn't ever accepted uh, as a, a religion. It wasn't always persecuted. The persecutions are sporadic. 
Um, so it wasn't constantly under the threat of persecution, and it was growing. And you see that in North Africa, as you as you know, Marcus. I'm right now in the business of of translating and commenting on uh, Cyprian, Saint Cyprian mm-hmm. of Carthage's writings um, in our in our series that we're doing for the Coming Home Network on the Early Church Fathers. And the more deeply I'm delving into Cyprian's time and place, the the clearer it is that the reason for the persecutions is because the church was already beginning to have a widespread impact in the empire. And uh, and that's one of the reasons why, because of that, the threat of, you know, influence, the Roman uh, governors and emperor, even emperor like Decius, the reason they responded is the same way that, that atheists and other pagans respond today. That is, they're they're worried about the influence of religion. On, uh, on they were worried about it at that time. Now, what that means is the targets were precisely the people that the Catholic Church believes are the leaders of the church, namely the bishops. That's why they were targeting Cyprian and others because they knew if they could get to the leaders, they would you know if they could destroy the shepherds, they would scatter uh, the sheep. Um, you know, Marcus, just in general, I, and in a way, and I'm glad this author has, uh, or this writer on Facebook, has um, encouraged us to go back to the early church because that's precisely what we did, you and I did. Right. And what did we find? We, we we came back with a conclusion that John Henry Newman came along, came uh, right. up with, and that is that the church, the single most mo- the modern church, who's singularly most in contact or most in continuity with the early church fathers is the church that is Roman Catholic. So um, anyway. um, That's right. In fact, when Newman did his study on the Arian controversy, he was a full-fledged Anglican, and and he was disturbed with the problems in the church, and he desired to go back to the early church. So he studied the Arian controversy, and in the end, it's a wonderful book, uh, in the end, he eventually admits that whenever he looked at an early church heresy, that as a um, a Bible alone Christian, he always ended up on the side of the heresy uh, mm-hmm. be- because he recognized that the problem with the early heretics were those that were abandoning this apostolic tradition and were leaning on their own interpretation of Scripture. And so you have all the different heresies of the early church and eventually, he, he struggled with the idea, well, what about the doctrines? And, of course, that went to his book, The Development of Doctrine, which eventually brought Newman into the church, in which he says to become deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. And so the, the call, we encourage you to read the early church fathers. Let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll get into Romans after the break. See you in a bit. I'm Marcus Grodi, the host of this program, and I'd like to tell you about my newest book, What Must I Do to Be Saved? A growing number of Christians today believe that all that is necessary for salvation is an individual's faith in Jesus. Churches everywhere proclaim this Jesus and me theology based upon a simple interpretation of John 3.16. They diminish the need for rituals, sacraments, creeds, or even membership in any particular church. But is this true? In this book, I examine how salvation has always come 
by being a faithful individual in the family of God, the church. For information, please go to chresources.com or call 740-450-1175. Thank you. What do all these have in common? A former agnostic, a fallen away Catholic, and a once upon a time Protestant. Find out next time on The Journey Home. Marcus Grodi invites pilgrims from all walks of life to share how they made it home to the Catholic Church. The Journey Home, only on EWTN. The Journey Home is seen and heard around the world on EWTN. For dates and times in your area, log on to EWTN.com. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grodi with Dr. Kenneth Howell. And uh, we spent the first half hour looking at the comment from Facebook. And um, if you go to our website, deepinscripture.com, and you look at today's program, the worksheet will be posted there of the text we're looking at, but also the text of that entire uh, posting from Facebook if you want to look at that, listen to our comment. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And we are going to post to the gentleman himself to let him know that um, that we discussed it on our program. But let's get to Romans uh, for the second half of the, Romans, the program, Romans 11, 1 through 12. And again, if you're at home and you can open up your Bible, uh, it might facilitate our discussion. Ken, we're only going to look at verses 1 through 12 today, but it's important that we see how it fits into the wider context of what Paul has been doing in his discussion. He begins this section with the question, I ask then, has God rejected his people? So what's the context of that question? Yeah, that's, uh, Paul here is taking one further step in the problem that he raised beginning in chapter 9. You remember that the first part of Romans uh, chapters 1 through 8 was this great proclamation of the of faith as the instrument by which we come into union with God uh, through the sacraments in baptism, which baptism is the sacrament of faith. That is, it, it imparts the seed of faith in the heart. Paul's saying that as people are justified by the grace of God, they come to walk in the Spirit of God and they come to realize that nothing can separate them from the love of Christ. And the more that I've read this section of chapters 9 through 11 again, the more I think it goes back to that, that statement in chapter 8, at the very end of chapter 8, that where Paul says that neither height nor depth nor any of the created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the problem that Paul then comes up with is the question, well, if nothing can separate us from the love of God, why has Israel rejected their own Messiah? 
here they were great privileged people and, and uh, given the covenants and the word the the cult or the liturgy the the uh, temple worship they were given the Shekinah glory and the giving of the law oh, why have they rejected remember Paul's statement back in chapter 9 and verse 6 where he says it's not as if the word of God has fallen or has failed for not all Israel are Israel, and not all the seed of Abraham are the children of Abraham. And this is where he makes the distinction that we talked about several weeks ago between those who are, you might say, truly Israel and those that are only Israel in the outward person, so to speak. Now, it's interesting. Let me just bring in a parallel here. Um, I had some contact with Orthodox Jews um, a few years ago in which we got into the question of what what makes a person a Jew. Now, the, you might say the more secularized or liberal Jews tend to think, well, if you're, you know, you're, you're, you're physically descended from the Jews, uh, going back ultimately to Abraham, then you are Jew. The Orthodox Jews say that secularized people, secularized Jews who don't believe in God, are not really Jews. And why do they say that? They say it because to them, the heart of Judaism is faith in the Lord. It's faith in Adonai. And they seem to be reflecting the same thing that Paul here is saying, that though a person may be physically descended from Abraham, they're not necessarily true Israelites. Now, Paul deals with that question then in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 that we've been that we dealt with just in the previous couple of weeks. Remember that Paul here is reaffirming that no one can be saved outside of Christ. No one can come to the fullness and the riches of God's grace without going through Jesus Christ. But then that even makes the question harder. Well, what about those Jews, then, that have rejected Christ as their Savior? Now, he's been dealing with it from the point of view of man's, the side of man, the side of the human being. They've rejected, then does that mean that they are, that they are cut off? Now he's going to deal in chapter 11 from the side of God. He's saying, okay, if they've rejected God, so to speak, has God rejected them? That's the question he's asking in chapter 11 and verse 1. And he asked this question, if I might retranslate it for just a moment. God has not rejected his people, has he? And his answer is, absolutely not. God forbid, the Greek is megenoito. It couldn't, in no way could it be true that God has rejected his people. Because God made an eternal covenant with his people. And now we get into verse 2, where he says, he gives himself as an example. You see, he's saying, I'm an Israelite. God's not rejected his people completely. So he goes on from there in chapter 11. That's the context, Marcus, that we're working with here. All right, excellent. Thank you, Ken. Um, I can't help but hear in this parallels that we face in our own day when we go to church on Sunday and we we encounter people that are on fire for their faith and they know their faith, they live their faith, they understand their faith. Others kind of go through the motions. 
And uh, mm-hmm. the question is, is there a distinction? Does it make a difference? And uh, in fact, St. Augustine dealt with this in his book, The City of God. You know, that that's when he introduced this idea of a visible and invisible church, that there are some who are in the church uh, that aren't really a part of the church. And there are those that are outside that really are a part of the church because mm-hmm. it has to do with what's going right. on inside of your heart. And he's dealing with that here. And Ken, he's dealing with the mystery of God's foreknowledge. Uh, we ask the question, well, does anything happen apart from his will? Uh, when we see great crises in the history of the church throughout the ages, was that God's plan? Mm-hmm. Do you allow it to happen? And we see that in this whole passage. Has God rejected his people? Verse 2, no, God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Verse 5, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So we see the work of his plan, uh, a plan that only he knows, and we do the best we can, Mm -hmm. looking at it from our angle with the data we have. But his plan is mysterious beyond our ability to understand because he is a different being than us. Verse 7, Israel failed to obtain what it sought. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Now we have that strange relationship between the act of God and our freedom to respond. Um, The elect obtained it. Well, was it their choice or was it distinct from their choice? And the rest, did they have no choice at all? Was their heart hardened by God? And these are all subjects that he's going to deal with. Even if we jump down to verse 11 and 12, have they stumbled so to fall? In other words, is it done, mm-hmm. declared, because they've rejected God? Is there no more option for them? And then we get in the great mystery of 11 and 12, and he says, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You know, Ken, that gets into the even the great mystery if we look at even the Reformation, if we look at it from a Catholic perspective. You know, why did God, God allow that to happen? Did that happen apart from God's will? Or indeed, was that in the mystery of his will, part of the way he renews the church in the bigger picture? Mm. Boy, this is this is a, a big question, and it, the question here that is so difficult to to answer is, you know, why does God not work according to the way we think He should work? <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, He, uh, and this is the problem that was underlying the Book of Job as well, right? Because God was stripping Job of all of his wealth and all of his uh, human um, accomplishments. And but he had a deeper purpose, and he might say, "Did God ha- was it His will for the people of Israel in the time of Jesus and Paul and the apostles? Was it was it His will for the Jews to embrace Christ, embrace Jesus as the Messiah?" And the only answer that you can come with, well, of course it was His will that they should embrace. But in His providence and His will, in that sense. His providential will, he allowed them the free choice of their actions in which they chose to reject him. Okay, well, then in another way you can say, well, in his permissive will, not in his 
decreed will, but in his permissive will, he permitted people to walk away from him and even to be hardened, because that's what he says in verse 7 that you read very wisely. What then that which Israel sought, this it did not obtain? No, it did, but the, the elect obtained it. The rest were hardened. That word hardened is a key word here because Paul's going to bring that word in again back in chapter 11, verse 25, when he says a hardening has happened in part to Israel. Now, we're going to have to wait until next week to discuss that particular verse. And that verse admits of a couple of different interpretations, which we can talk about at that time. But what he's saying is that there's a hardening that's taken place in Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And exactly what that fullness of the Gentiles is, well, we'll get into that. But for today, what we clearly see here is that, like you very wisely brought up about St. Augustine, God is working in the boundaries, within the boundaries of the church, and he's, as it were, um, uh, sifting out the chaff through the, uh, you know, so that the true wheat can remain within the church. And it's interesting that our Holy Father Benedict, St. Benedict, I mean, not St. Benedict, um, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth actually wrote about this, uh, I think it's some years ago now, when he talked about the fact that he foresaw the church being much smaller than it had been, but also much truer than it had been. I think he was probably thinking of this this remnant idea. If we go back to our text in chapter 11, that's why Paul cites the the instance of Elijah uh, on the on Mount Horeb, praying to God, because here he gives Elijah as an example, as a, a time when God, even though it looked like God had completely forsaken Israel, he had not, in fact, um, forsaken him at all. Yeah, the the uh, the the prophecy uh, that we see in the books of Kings looks forward to a time when, in fact, uh, Israel will reject the prophets, as it says, uh, turn from the covenant, um, even turn from worship, the temple, destroy the altars. And in this case, Elijah thought he was the only one left. And, uh, you know, the irony of, of, of Elijah, it, it, you know, the, the the temptation there is for any of us to think, I'm the only one left that's going to handle on what's true around here. And uh, sometimes we need humility to hear that, no, there is a remnant. It's not just ourselves that got the only handle on what is true. But he, but I found it interesting when we look at these quotes to realize that it's very unlikely that the Apostle Paul had sitting on the table in front of him a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures. Whenever you see images of synagogues that are portrayed in movies or in books, you know that there's a, a scroll of the Old Testament scriptures, most like the Torah, um, that's very protected by the rabbi. Um, and they're very large so that they can be read from in the synagogue. They didn't have the nice little paperback books that we have of the Bible. They weren't available. They, they were scarce. 
And so it's unlikely that Paul had in front of him a copy of the scriptures. We know from the comparison that if he's quoting anything, he's quoting from the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament. But what struck me is that, is it that Paul had such a great memory of this verse from 1 Kings 19 or Isaiah 29 or Deuteronomy 29 or Psalm 69? Or were these the verses of the Old Testament that all the faithful Jews knew because of the meaning that they had in salvation history? And so what Paul is doing is from memory, he's pointing the Jewish Christians to those texts that were always important as they looked forward from the Old Testament prophets to the expectation of the Messiah, they were looking. And so these were the verses that set the context for their looking forward to the Messiah. And Paul is digging, dipping into their memory, these key verses, reminding them that this is what the Lord said would happen. This is what would happen to Israel, that there would be a remnant as as is said in Kings, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, this Israel knew to be a pointing ahead to the remnant that would be faithful to God when the Messiah came, and that this remnant would be chosen by grace. I mean, there, Ken, is this pointing ahead to what our Lord points out in the first chapters of John, that this grace will come. That, you know, Moses gave the law, but there would come this grace that would awaken the heart of those people that would then follow Christ and then through their faith in Christ would become this remnant. Yeah, and the the beauty of the, the new covenant in Christ coming into the world is that you might say this remnant is those who are the faithful of Israel who have embraced Christ like Paul, but also that the Gentiles are now part of it. And so the vision of the prophets of the Old Testament, where Jew and Gentile from all over the earth have come to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, is true. And I think of our, our good friends, uh, uh, people like uh, Rosalind Moss and her brother and many other Hebrew Christians, the Jews who've come to understand um, that the Holy Catholic Church is the true and apostolic church, they have embraced that church by embracing their Messiah. And so it's beautiful that we find our, our Jewish brothers and sisters, who really are our older brothers and sisters yeah. in the true faith, they have been, we should always be eternally grateful to them that they have preserved the great traditions which we as Gentiles have come to embrace. What we have to remember is that in times of trial, in times when the church looks defeated, that it's looked that way before. And that's, the, that's why Paul cites this case of, um, of Elijah at, on the Mount Horeb. Remember that, that, that story of Elijah at Mount Horeb, where God speaks to him in a still small voice, is in 1 Kings chapter 19. And that follows 1 Kings chapter 18, well, obviously. <laughs> but that's the story of, that's the story of 
Elijah against the prophets of Baal. And what did Elijah do? Single-handedly, he defeated them by God called, by God bringing down this fire to consume the sacrifice. And then immediately after this great victory, Elijah is off cowering in this cave. Oh God, they've they've killed your your prophets. They've forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left alone. They seek my life to take it. And Paul here now moves from that statement to the very end of the story in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 18, where he says, I have left 7,000 in Israel, all who have not bowed the knee to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, what he's saying here is, you've got to come to the end of the story. God's not finished with Israel yet. And that's the way we need, I think, as Catholic Christians, to have our attitude shaped by this text as well. God is not finished with the Jews. God is not finished with Israel. We need always to stand beside them and to be their brothers and sisters in hopes that they too will see the beauty of Christ as the Messiah. We, it seems that we always, when we think about why our Lord Jesus came uh, to, you know, in his incarnate entrance into our world through Mary, why did he do that? And we normally think about uh, freedom from sin and, uh, you know, taking our place, as someone said recently, he took the bullet for us. You know, he went to the cross mm-hmm. uh, to mm-hmm. give us new life and to bring grace so that we might be adopted sons. And, you know, all of that uh, is the, the reason why. But there's a part of it that's, a, there's a thread that runs all through the New Testament that deals with the, the extension of the gospel beyond Judaism, beyond Israel, to the whole world, to the Gentiles. And that's a common theme throughout every New Testament book. It's in the book of Acts. Immediately when you see that, uh, when, when Peter awakens to that dream that this is uh, for all people, and it took some real arguing and convincing by the, the earliest leaders in Acts chapter 15 to get everyone to recognize that the remnant is not merely a remnant of Jews, but it's a remnant of believers. And so you, you recognize that one of the reasons that our Lord came was that all through the Old Testament, Israel was always called to reach out beyond the boundaries of Israel to proclaim the good news of God to everyone. And we hear that in all of the prophecies, the prophets looking ahead about uh, the gospels, for, the, the truth of God is for everyone. All right. Mm -hmm. But there's no way that we can see from history that Israel was recognizing that until it was taken away. In other words, until by God allowing them to fall, not permanently, it allowed them to see, allowed some to see that the message of God was for all people. And it seems to me that's the point of what he's making at the end of this section, that through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
That strikes me, Ken, because I live out in the country, and I'm, I've got a book coming out in the fall that's basically about gospel simplicity. I don't know that I would have discovered that simplicity unless the city was taken away from me and I was put out into the rural life where I discovered the importance of simplicity as a part of the gospel. My stubbornness would have been stuck in the city, and so I learned that by having the city taken away from me. In a way, that's what happened to Israel. That's right. The Gentiles would not have been accepted until the, the Jews rejected the gospel. And then some Jews were open to hear from God that this was not just for them, but for everyone. Well, I, that's a great point because, you see, um, <clears throat> when you look at those Old Testament prophets and you see how they, they predict that in the age of the Messiah, the Gentiles from all over the earth will come. This is in Zechariah 8. It's in Isaiah 19 and other great passages in, in uh, the second part of Isaiah. What they're saying is that the, that the Jews will have a renewal of faith and the Gentiles will come along with them into the worship of God. But it didn't happen that way. So you have to ask yourself the question, well, why didn't it happen that way? Uh, what happened so that made the Jews at the time of Jesus become so exclusivistic in their attitudes, such that they, you know, called them Gentile sinners, as it were? Um, and the answer, I think, has to do with the conquering of, of Palestine, the conquering by the Romans. In other words, because they were against the pagan world around them, the Jews began to sort of get into a ghetto mentality. They began to withdraw from the world and want to have nothing to do with their Gentile neighbors so that they became, <clears throat> they became isolated and their minds began to be shaped by that experience such that, or so much so, that you see Peter, as you said, in, in Acts chapter 10, having this difficult time with eating with a, pagan, a Roman pagan like, like a Cornelius. Uh, where, but there is this revelation that's given to Peter to say, no, I have not rejected the Gentiles, the Lord is saying to them. Now, Paul then picks up upon that in our chapter here, as you, as you said, and he's saying, okay, so the, the people, the Jews should have expected that, but they didn't. And now what that means is that the riches of faith are coming to the Gentiles. And if that's true in a small way, how much more would it be true for the Jews in a large way? And that's what he means by the fullness, which is what we're going to have to discuss next week when we get all the way to chapter to verse 25, the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the Jews. Great, Ken. Thank you. And that's where we'll pick up next week. We may dip back in. We didn't even look at verse 6, which I want to make sure we get through that. And uh, then we'll pick up with verse 13. And as you said, we'll go on into the 20s. Thank you for joining us for this program. Uh, go to deepinscripture.com. Go to our Facebook, Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. And we'd love to know if this program is helping you grow closer to Christ. God bless you. See you next week.